But what is the what is the way that you should take this? This isn't a yes or no discussion. This isn't do this or don't do this discussion. This is a very internalized discussion. It's it's saying when you see yourself doing something, does it fall into any of these categories? And if it does, how should you understand yourself? And how should you try to understand others? And how should you allow room for yourself? And how should you allow room for others? Welcome into the Zal, the study hall where friends gather to catch up, argue, and to make sense of things. I am your host, David Grossbaum, and as usual, I'm joined by my dear friend and study partner, Adam Valen Levinson. Hello. Yeah, it sounds like we got ourselves an intro. Feeling good about it. How, how are you, man? I'm good. Thank God. Um, we're covering today. Take a deep one, Adam. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Three dimensions of altruism and their application in real world scenarios okay just um i'm gonna get one more coffee (laughs) use that for yourself whenever witnessing somebody engaging in goodness whether it's someone else or ourselves we are often tempted to psychoanalyze, overanalyze that person and find a hint that that good deed actually is not so good. The moment any inconsistency appears on our radar, we are immediately jumping to assume the worst. Don't get me wrong. There are often people that do no good pretending to be good. But the mere presence of a discrepancy does not indicate any malice. How do I know this? Today, we will discuss three very different places the impulse to do good can come from. In Jewish thought, they are all considered valid and can appear in various people or in the same person, depending on the type of kindness he's performing, the time of its performance, the place of its performance. And despite their vast differences, they are all considered valid, though each has its own pros and cons. A thorough understanding of these will cause a person to be less judgmental of others and even more so less judgmental of themselves. The recognition that they are all valid but different will allow the person to use them as tools accordingly. Just to note that when I use the term God and the texts today use the term God, that can be somewhat disenfranchising for those that consider themselves less religious and um, more secular. But just know that if you believe in any form of altruism, any form of service above the self, to me, that's just a fill-in for the three-letter word God, right? If you're prepared to do an action, undertake some deed, which will say you will be worse physically because of this. You will have less money in your pocket or you will have less time on your schedule or you'll be exhausted. And nevertheless, you perform that act strictly for the good of others or for the good of the universe or for a spiritual pursuit, to me, that person is an intense theist, despite him claiming, he or she claiming to not be so godly inclined. So just know that our text is an extremely Jewish one, but its applications are for all. It's so funny because I've always, I've always felt like in most discussions of godliness take god add an o make it good and the sentence still holds i'm knocking my phone off the table because i'm excited (laughs) thinking about this because i feel like you think about this as if somebody has that same relationship to good and they're drawn towards wanting to understand what good is and figure that out and 
orient their life towards that. You consider that theism where in one way, I kind of say, well, if you have that really religiosity, you don't actually even need the theism and you might as well just be a good person or not might as well, but you could just be described as a, as a person that has faith in humanity as opposed to something above it. Right. But if it's a transcendent faith in humanity, to me, that's already a form of religion. It might be your own religion, but it's a, it's some form. Yeah. I, I, but if we got, if we got to semantics and not to uh, some sort of like core character difference, that seems pretty good. I don't think there's ever been like an inquisition about semantics. Actually, <laughs> you, that's actually so wrong. That's probably actually what all of them are. But I, I know the listeners probably have their mouths watering, waiting to get into the, the raw text, but we have to pay the bills, Adam. So I hear we have a new sponsor. Banana Shevitz, does your kiddish wine not have enough potassium? Try Banana Shevitz, the only kosher banana wine available, and not, not for good reason. Why would you say that? Banana Shevitz is made from the finest bananas they have near the checkout at Zabar's and is recommended by zero out of five dentists. Banana Shevitz, monkeys like it, so why shouldn't you? Wow, what an honor. I've been drinking that stuff since my childhood. Since I was a baby, and I, 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 people are missing out. I was weaned with it. I was weaned with banana <laughs> shevets. I want to say that explains a lot, but I won't. <laughs> okay, so today's piece of Torah comes from a, a discourse from 1906. The uh, fifth Chabad Rebbe, who is known actually as the Maimonides of Hasidic mysticism because of his um, specificity and length. And when you study his his text, it's so rich, it's like, it's like having a fantastic teacher conversing with you, but managing to get every single word of that conversation on paper. So he'll, he'll come across in the least academic way, you know, just you'll, you'll read his text and each thing seems so natural and so conversational. And slowly, as you go further and further in the text, you'll notice varying tidbits that are slowly added to your understanding of the topic. And he does it so seamlessly um, and so naturally that it really is easily internalized by the learner, by the reader. The text that we've been studying, that we'll be studying today is from such a discourse, but just know that we've excerpted it so hard that that greatness of the text will likely get lost, but we in English will try to get the concepts across to you. Let's see. You may be overestimating my ability to make sense of things, but <laughs> fingers crossed. Okay. The uh, print that we're using is from the English translation from the Kahoot Heritage series. It can be found online or on Amazon, and it's starting on page 27 if you manage to get a hold of the sought-after text. So just to give you a map before we jump into it, there are three types of service of God. There's the service of God which is son-like, S-O-N, like someone's child. There is the simple servant, and there is the joyful servant. We'll start by the son and go in order. Just know, as a side note, Judaism does not approve of any form of servitude to another human being. So anytime you find the term servant within this text, it's strictly servant between man to God. And uh, it is for that reason, actually, that we don't, 
absolute servitude man to man whatsoever. Actually, in the Torah, whenever a, someone insists on being a servant to one another, um, the halacha is that he needs to get his ears pierced because he, he wasn't listening enough to his actual real master, God. Right? So the concept of servitude to another man is actually contrary to Jewish beliefs in essence in ideal form. And that's why we say, hey, your ears are clearly not working well enough because you're not listening to your true master God and you want to serve another man. That's why the, the halacha is that if someone wants to say, stay a servant to somebody else, he needs to get his ears pierced. But that's just Whoa. in parentheses. I know, I know we're, we're, it's not uh, tattoos aren't kosh, but are, are, are ear piercings uh, not supposed to be okay for? Um, I'd assume, I honestly, I can't remember, but I think it's, technically fine so long um it isn't it isn't um jewelry that a man typically wouldn't wear but apparently it's fine they're saying it's explicit in the torah it's straight chapter and verse yeah so this one maybe they just like give you a really bad piercing deliberately <laughs> it's interesting we're going on a huge tangent but what else do we do in this podcast what else the, the nature of this prohibition against um only wearing things that males wear is very um sociological okay so for example rings in three thousand years ago would be prohibited because men didn't wear rings and only women did but now for example men wear wedding bands all the time and it's considered a man's garment so it's interesting that that text um dips into the sociological as well it's kind of it's kind of circular reasoning it's like you can wear it if you wear it and if you don't wear it you can't wear it kind of love it Um, All right, so let's go back into the text. So we're jumping in page 27, about halfway through the page. We can understand the dimension of son in man's relationship with God by using the metaphor of a human son's relationship with his father. The son naturally possesses a love for his father and is drawn to him with a great and powerful love. He very much desires that with that, that which his father desires, the will of the father is also the will of the son. And what is against the will of the father is absolutely against the will of the son. So this for, first paragraph about the nature of a relationship between the father and the son is basically saying that there is a genetic element to the son's desires when they reflect the father's desires. In other words, if I have, if my father has a natural liking toward, um, you know, spicy foods, it's not guaranteed, but it becomes likelier that I will like it just because my genetic makeup is 50% my father. Hmm. So the desire, the natural inborn desires of a human being comes from the parents. And therefore, um, the wills, the desires of that person also come from the parents. Um, if you take 23 and me test, there'll be different sections of uh, liking foods. I forgot the spices, but there's like apparently some very controversial spice that they can tell within your DNA if you would like that, that spice or not. A controversial, controversial spice <laughs> kinds of things that ends friendships. You don't like cumin? Get out of my, <laughs> but at the sociologist in me says basically on the nature nurture divide that there's essentially no nature. All of this can be nurtured. But even so, to this idea of sons being just like fathers, that implicit connection, that's something that I feel like we got to talk about 
how that's not, if this is the metaphor, that's not necessarily a relationship between a son and a father. Right. So, so just to, just to emphasize, and I made this point before as well, there's three different types of relationships between man and God or man with the altruism that he's seeking. Um, and they're all opposites. They're different. So we're pointing to specific elements which have the father and son relationship in them. But if you point to another deed or another relationship, which is unlike the father and son relationship, that's fine. You know, it's just a different category. I guess what I mean is that a father-son relationship, like, you know, if we talk about the, the power of metaphors here is really clear. Father and son, that makes sense. But okay, we're saying the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but sometimes uh, apples far fall um, yeah. very far from trees. No, yes. Absolutely. And that could still be the father and son thing, right? No. Why am I so, why am I so intense about this? Why am I so, <laughs> I'm just like, I didn't do what my dad, I think that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, I didn't do what my dad did. No, 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 no. So it's not saying, that's my point. It's not saying that everything that you do is apple doesn't far from, f- fall far from the tree. It's very hard to say. <laughs> when it, what it is saying is that when the apple doesn't far for those things that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, let's understand them and the nature of them. It's not saying that everything is exactly like your father or like your mother. It's just saying, let's understand the nature of those specific things which do stem from your parents. I get that. Yeah, I'm just getting so distracted by, I love the idea of using the metaphor to understand the relationship. And then I say, well, what are the other interpretations of that same metaphor? And then using that to then go back and understand the relationship, even more so the idea of say rebelling against the father simply because that's what he's doing or me rebelling against my mom trying to get me to eat stuff. Like the more, if I, <laughs> if I went along with her every desire to eat, I'd be dead. And, and maybe that's also part of the relationship between man and God or man and goodness is that there's some reflex to, to push back against it also. Yes, maybe if it's, if, if it, if we're talking about the strictly genetic relationship, then that reflex that you're discussing could be about that. So we're, again, we're only speaking about the things that are nature. Hmm. Okay. In this first analogy, we have three analogies to get to. So this first analogy are the, is about things that are natural. Okay. So first of all, your natural desires, which are inborn, stem for, from that father. Those natural desires. Next paragraph. One more thing. Also, your mind also stems from your parents. So not just the natural desires, but the things which aren't, those desires which don't come so naturally, but are reached as desires via logic. The logic also oftentimes comes from the parents. In general, the logic of the son matches that of the father. As the father's logic dictates, so does the son's. And he acts according to the father's desire in every detail and serves him with the actual service, a complete service with all his heart and soul. So in this first metaphor, this is, again, it's all analogy. But in this analogy, uh, we're talking about some things that somehow naturally are consistent with God's will, right? So when a son, in those cases, Adam, when a son is like the father, in those cases, did the son have to work to be like the father? Hmm. So 
Sometimes the desire was literally there and he didn't have to do a thing for it. And even for those desires, which he had to have a thing for it, you know, he had to reach a logical conclusion to reach that desire. That logic itself was a genetic gift. So therefore, in those, those desires, which are more sun-like, the person didn't need to work on. So the analog for that would be in someone's relationship to God or with their altruistic pursuits. It was there naturally. It wasn't going against the nature of the person. So, you know, fill in the blank. I don't want to get too personal, but hopefully most of us don't have an inclination to murder, right? Let's say. So when someone's not murdering, and it happens to have said in the Torah also, thou shall not murder. Most times it's not like, oh, shoot, it says in the Torah, thou shall not murder. I guess I won't be murdering today. In those cases, in that example, and there are many other examples, the quote, father's will was so natural to the son that the son didn't really have to go through any um, steps to reach that will and to act according to it because it was natural in him. And there's others examples, you know, let's say some people have a really, really easily fuzzy, warm feeling about charity, you know, and they're tempted almost to give charity and they enjoy that experience of giving. You know, for that person, it wasn't such a service or they didn't really need to break themselves or their character to give because it was worth it giving that sandwich to the poor person on the street. It was so consistent with their character. So those deeds, that altruism is, um, is sun-like, S-O-N-like, because it's natural to the person. I, my only caveat is just that I don't think any of that has to be like what we're calling genetic or natural. All of that can come by virtue of being, you know, raised in a certain way. The, the genetic and the natural is also part of the metaphor. We're saying that that stems from the, the father, father in heaven, God. In other words, God injected in every human soul some inclinations and some traits which are godly and therefore to be godly for those traits or for those actions uh, it doesn't take a lot of work so again yeah i didn't clarify that thank you yeah so the, the the genetic passing down of genetic material uh is also part of the analogy with the the good deeds that we're discussing over here aren't coming from your biological father they're coming from your father in heaven uh-huh okay well yeah, the idea of there being good in everybody, that, that seems like a nice thing to get to. The flip, the flip side, I think, that people sometimes, uh, what, what's the word? Harp, harp on? Is, I wanted to say hawk. It's harp on something, right? Yeah, is, is that, um, that if there is this genetic element, then somebody, if you can say that somebody's polluted, then you might say all of their children will also be this polluted thing. You know, if there's something bad about some group of people, then it's then it's ingrained in them. And that's the sort of danger with the genetic metaphors. Right. No, you're you're right. I guess because this metaphor is talking about the the analog to this metaphor is God. And I guess there's no evil traits stemming from God. In other words, it's not a pure reflection of the God of the altruism. So in that department, I guess the analogy and the analog don't line up. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a good point. As long as it's all positive, that's great. Yeah. Realize how empowering this is because the, one of the classic claims against either yourself or someone else doing something altruistic, they'll immediately say, oh, it came naturally. Like, I don't deserve any credit for this. This isn't altruism because it was so natural with who I am essentially, right? Uh -huh. And the first analogy teaches us that 
yeah, that's totally fine. Some forms of altruism, some good deeds that you're pursuing can be like a child, you know, and the child is, is pursuing that which his father or mother's pursuit because it's in their genetic DNA. So too, you have a soul. And if that soul inclines you toward goodness, that's still altruism, just, to be, just even though it's totally consistent and comfortable with your psyche. I got it. I get it. I'm like, I'm latching on to such specific details, but it, this is really just saying that you don't have to feel that in this case, you don't have to feel that you're responsible for doing something good. You don't have to feel like, um, I don't, there's a relief in that lack of agency. Exactly. That's a, that's a great way of saying it. You don't need agency for it to be good. Perfect. Okay. So that was the excerpt about the son-father-son-mother relationship. We're going to turn to page 33 in the text and now understand the second type of interaction or pursuit of godliness or goodliness. Um, and that is the one of the simple servant. Halfway through the page. There is, however, another level referred to as the dimension of, quote, the servant. This dimension also exists within the souls of Israel and stems from their bodies, as in the verse, for the children of Israel are servants to me. So let's pause right there. He makes an interesting point, which I don't, go, don't want to go too far on a tangent about. But the areas of a person that are not naturally good tend to stem from their body, right? Their, their animalistic tendencies. And there's so much Hasidic mysticism and philosophy to understand on this. And we'll probably cover these topics in many, many more podcasts to come. But we believe that, and that the human body and the id within it are animalistic. Now, oftentimes animals, animalistic uh, as, an, as an adjective is used um, negatively, right? And it's not. Animals aren't bad. Animals are neutral. They're, they just exist and their you know, existence is fine. Uh, they're selfish, but when an animal is selfish, it's natural and it isn't considered a put down. So, so too with um, our bodies, when someone doesn't naturally incline themselves toward goodness, it stems from their animalistic tendencies. And those things are completely natural. Right. So when I want to keep that $5 in my pocket and not buy a sandwich for a hungry man on the street, that's stemming from that natural, animalistic, neutral selfishness. You know, the, the, the one that seeks survival. Okay. Yeah. This, I can feel myself having this reflex to go, well, not an, all animals are selfish and animals have this social characteristic and whatever, but I recognize it's not that's not the point. The point is to take that for granted and use those characteristics to understand. Right. Exactly. The analogy. Right. Okay. For the most part. Yeah. There's, there's exceptions to every analogy. You're right. No, and that's, it's even mentioned, you know, if you'd, I don't want to go on this tangent either, but in the, in Hasidic texts, you'll find, you know, certain great attributes uh, within animals, you know, that are, you know, the, the ants are, are, judicious it says and that the cats are modest you'll find these things right it's, it's not that it's all bad but the point is it's all left to natural devices and usually those devices are fend for thyself type of things got it okay i'm gonna put away this article about dolphins then. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Vehukimai, and this is just like Maisa Haevid Laden. Shonarim Shaikar Inyana Avdus Inirak Bifchinas Oil. Right? So we say that left to someone's natural devices, the body is animalistic and therefore somewhat selfish. And therefore, when serving something, in other words, one must break the self in order to perform that productive action. Right? So a person, when performing a an action which is against their natural tendencies, they must break the self. Right? It isn't like that sun metaphor that we gave earlier, that when you're doing that good deed, it's perfectly aligned with what you want and how you feel as a person. In many, many cases, I would even venture to say in most cases, when someone does something good, it's saying, no, 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 no. Left to my own devices, if I was you know, on an island and didn't have any belief system and didn't believe in altruism or kindness, I wouldn't be performing this act. But I'm breaking, quote, the self in order for the better of, in order for the better, in order to reach the betterment of society. So you can't even rest. Right? So just like in the servant metaphor, uh, it's constant discomfort. And the, the, the classic line in the Talmud about servants is that a servant isn't into his servitude. If, if he had the opportunity, he would escape. And it's just that he's either recognizes that this is what he should be doing, as in our case, or perhaps he's grown accustomed to it. And that's why he embraces the servitude, which is so unnatural to him. So that's the second category. The second category is basically the servant, the simple servant, which recognizes that a certain deed is objectively good, whether your definition is of good is spiritual or godly or better for society, whatever your definition of good is. But let's say you came to an objective conclusion that this deed is good, but you, you're just not naturally into it. <laughs> what should you do? That's where the servant, the simple servant mentality comes in and says, yeah, this is your yoke. The yoke of a, of a knowledge, which says this is an, obje an objectively good act, will break down your natural tendencies and almost coerce you to do that correct thing. So here's the second form of altruism. I think just like right off the bat, the fact that there are these multiple things, I mean, I, I, it's just like, this is why it always seems so dangerous to quote a single Bible verse, say, and say, you know, see, and you know, extrapolate from some particular word because the fact that there are these multiple types, it's like you could not give one of these metaphors without the other and think that you were really uh, doing it in good faith, like that you were doing it, giving it these multiple layers just have to be taken together, right? Absolutely, uh, 100%. Um, and there's even simpler examples throughout the Torah of people of opportunities to take things so easily out of context. Mm -hmm. And yeah, people do it all the time on the daily. You know, they, 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 they'll quote, and this is true about religious things, but it's true truly about anything. That if let's say there's a super respected professor and he has a vast array of opinions and, and it's all, you know, one huge ecosystem of ideas and each idea feeds on the other idea and it's all interdependent. And, and you, you, if you grasp a hold of one that happens to play to your, wants 
it's super easy to manipulate. And of course it's wrong. Yeah. I mean, a broader question just about what, what you actually need to call it context in this case, at least you need the one example in the context of the other three, but maybe it's like, well, do you need this in the context of, you know, in your case, maybe like dozens of years of study, do you need it in the context of, you know, thousands of pages of discourse or, the, you know, you know, honestly, my, my one ad piece of advice, and I'm still a pisher, you know, I'm a pisher in this whole rabbi thing and taking things the the, the, the chance that your words will be taken out of context mm -hmm. uh, is still new to me, but I will say, be very reluctant when speaking conclusively. Try to keep everything as conversationally uh, inclined as possible. You know, and only with regards to, like, if you're studying Jewish texts, it's only with regards to Jewish law of, like, the do's and don'ts will you see the rigorous, you know, ironclad yes, no stuff. But with the, within any other realm, it's very infrequently speaking in terms of, of uh, inflexibility. This is, I mean, also probably tangential, but do you think that being, when you're in the rabbi mode, it's very different from, I want to say preaching, but proclaiming, like even when you're talking to people, it's always like, this is a way to see it, but push back. It depends on the context. Yeah. Taking, taking things in context depends on the context, how much you take it in context. <laughs> Does it sound crazy? Okay. But no, that's exactly the reality of things. But it's not, it's true with rabbis, but it's true with anything. Podcast formats are different from a sermon, which is different from, you know, someone coming to me and asking me if this tefillin is kosher. You know, these, these are all different mm -hmm. segments. And this commentary, but the way that we read these commentaries like this written down, do you think they're written with the intent of being taken more or less at, at not at face value, but as kind of commandment, as like a argument, as um, truth. Yeah, but, but take it as a true pursuit of truth. Hmm. In other words, this discourse is from a 1906 and is part of what we call a hemshech, which is, I guess, translated literally a continuum of discourses, right? So you, you'd be laughed out of any room if you considered yourself an expert of the discourses of 1906, where you could only, when you can only quote the, the two paragraphs that we've learned, this, this doesn't even, it's not even constituting one, one thousandth of the text. It's just, it's just now we're poking at, we're kind of trying to poke at the larger ideas that I get. I'm thinking about the author is the author saying, here's my, Here's my truth. I guess it's here's my truth, but of course it's going to be in a, a dialogue with other ones. And so I'm allowed to make an argument as if this is the way that you should take this because I know that there's going to be pushback. But what is the what is the way that you should take this? This isn't a yes or no discussion. This isn't do this or don't do this discussion. This is a very internalized discussion. It's it's saying when you see yourself doing something does it fall into any of these categories? And if it does, how should you understand yourself? And how should you try to understand others? And how should you allow room for yourself? And how should you allow room for others? And because it's such an internalized discussion, I feel like it, it, it's less dictating. Right, there is no dictate. I, you're, you're totally right. It's, this is really, this is a reflex. I gotta, I, again, you know, could have gone to law school, but now there's like that impulse <laughs> is going, 
just the, even the idea of should and you go well should i should i think that way because as soon as i incorporate this into my way of thinking that might change how i do things and so i have to be critical even of receiving something that isn't an argument that isn't a dictate um right. yeah. what it, it's a dictate of how one should i guess think maybe but um but even at that it's you don't know which category each of the three fall into, you know, even so, so he made this beautiful picture and you understand each thing thoroughly, but then you still are going to have to ask only yourself. Okay. Let me be honest with myself. This D that I'm about to perform this form of altruism, which I'm seeking, which one is it? And that determination of which one it is, is still completely only you can answer. I have to, I have to get better at just receiving and not immediately pushing back. No, but it's good. The things that come, it says in Hasidic mysticism, we'll teach this, but the things that come after a pushback are deep, much more deeply internalized because it's, it's, you've kind of tailored it for your own thinking. So it has its pros as well. well I, I should say that I've always, I cannot hear the word yoke and you spelled it, but like, since I played Oregon Trail on the computer as a kid, I just think of egg yolks. I do it, but that's on the inside. The yolk is on the very inside. So maybe, you know, the yolk is internalized. All right, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but so let's digress about the, um, the second category. The second category is the simple servant. So let's apply this in real life. So you're about to do a good deed. And then comes your, you know, evil inclination and starts pouring cold water on this good deed and says, you know, Adam, you just gave that $5 to charity. You fed that poor guy in the street. Who are you kidding? This isn't you. You had to break yourself to perform this act of altruism. So it's really not altruism. This is the most inconsistent thing with your own self, right? So it's funny because this claim is exactly opposite the first claim we have in the first category. But the answer is this is another form of altruism. Just because the altruism is inconsistent with the self, that doesn't mean it's any less a good deed and essentially a good deed and absolutely a good deed. And, and just because it's inconsistent with the self doesn't take away from that ob objectivity. First category says, despite its consistency with myself, it's still considered altruism. Even though it's so easy for me and so natural to me, it's still considered altruism. The second category says the exact opposite. Even though it's so inconsistent with me and it's almost like a slave performing a deed for its master and like an animal with a yoke on its back just plowing a field because it was forced to, it's still considered an altruistic good deed because it is objectively a good deed. That's such a, it's very helpful in, because I think about how, how often you might pass a homeless person on the street. I think for a lot of people, it's just like, look, I, I don't, I don't engage, you know, and then the idea of engaging once now breaks a seal where it's like, well, now, uh oh, how do I navigate between some and never and some and always and that becomes a very difficult, but to say, hey, look, you could, you could not do it. You doesn't have to be a referendum on who you are, right? You said it so beautifully, like really, that nailed it. When it, just a flashback to when I was young and I would hit the streets regularly and say, "Excuse me, sir, are you Jewish? When you want, do you want to put on tefillin?" Mm -hmm. um, or, "Excuse me, ma'am, are you Jewish? Would you like some Shabbat candles or whatever?" Very often, especially when the person is irreligious, it becomes a referendum on their entire life's, 
you know, religiosity. And then they start claiming that they're hypocrites. And then they start claiming, no, 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 I do it already. I don't need any more religion in my life. And bah, 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 bah. and like to me in my my 14 year old mind, and it's still true today, even though I've grown more cynical the older I've gotten, it's like all these questions are, are irrelevant. Ask yourself a simple objective question. Is this action that I'm about to undertake good? And if the answer is yes, then engage in it, right? Even if in some, some cases you're sun-like, you know, and it's supernatural to you and then you feel guilty that it's too natural to you. And then the next time you feel like you're a simple servant and you have to break yourself to do that deed. And then you feel guilty that how come I need to break myself? How come my natural self doesn't want to do it? And then you start feeling guilty in that department on the other extreme. And, and the answer is there's two forms of altruism. We're going to get to a third one in a, in a second, but there's two forms of altruism and they're totally valid. And you don't need to hit yourself on the inside saying that either the fact that I did this good deed is a weakness or because I'm so weak, I shouldn't perform the good deed. Both of those are wrong. I wonder if that was my, at least it's describing what I, what I, what I did the first time I put on tefillin and I don't want to say the last, but there haven't been many times. But when I was in Abu Dhabi and it was my bar mitzvah, somebody that had never been bar mitzvah. And it was, you know, friends of yours, basically, you know, from the same part of Crown Heights that were there and saying, hey, why don't you do this? And definitely that thought about, and this isn't necessarily, I think for a lot of people it might not go into the category of good deed or not to put on tefillin or not, but this acceptance of something different, this acceptance of pushing a boundary, of trying something new, of facing a fear maybe, or of accepting a tradition, whatever it was, it seemed kind of good to me, but was also like, this is not what I do most of the time. And for a moment, it's really not like me, but for a moment I was able to go, I'll just do this for this moment and, and, and forget about all the context. Um, I, I don't have any regrets about that. That's the concept. Yeah, it became the title of your book. That was not meant to be a pitch. That's just really what I what I happened to. Right, right, right. What I thought of. <laughs> okay, so let's go to the category three. And if the first two categories weren't deep enough into the weeds for you, my friendly listeners, <laughs> this one, according to the text, like according to when you're studying in yeshiva, it is the, um, it is the most complex and most difficult to understand. And we'll jump into it. But again, got to pay the bills. One word from our sponsors. As always, we are brought to you by Schmendel's Herring Deodorant. Schmendel's using technology from our time in ancient Egypt to turn pickled herring into an aerosol. Schmendel's, better to smell like a fish than like a man. Okay. Uh, Category number three. The omnum, however... There can be a servant. Again, the concept of a servant, as in the first analogy, is one that breaks the self to perform an action. But he serves out of love and pleasure and joy. For he rejoices and takes pleasure in his work because of his great love and connection, heart and soul, to his master. And this joy in performing this deed for the master isn't because he's made up of the same genetic makeup like a son to his father, like our first category. And obviously it isn't because he's receiving some uh, physical gratification in return. We're not talking about that because again, we're talking about altruism where you're not receiving anything in return. 
It's only because he, the servant, is quite refined, and he, and because of his great refinement, he recognizes the greatness of the master which he's serving. So this category is almost a, a fusion of the first two. It has the advantages of the, of the son in that when performing that action, he's truly into it. But he's also servant-like in that this action that he's doing isn't natural to him. There is a form of yoke there that's breaking him to do that deed. But once that deed is performed, because he recognizes the greatness of the master, because he re recognizes, in this case, the greatness of the altruism which he's serving, God, therefore, he's uh, joyous about the deed. Right? So the first category of servant, category number two of all three, he's a, he's a servant which breaks himself and therefore he's basically bitter about the fact that he needed to do that deed. He's like, oh, this sucks. I need to let that $5 go from my wallet and give the poor person charity. In the third category, he's breaking himself to give it, but he's like, oh my God, like I'm a part of something big. This is quite unnatural to me, but this unnatural experience is joyous to me, either because I'm proud of myself or I'm proud about that which I'm serving or many other reasons. So it has that unnatural element to it that you have to break the self. But because that unnaturalness is exciting for whatever reason, there's many reasons it could be, therefore he's rendered the joyous servant. What's a, what's a, um, an example of that? I feel like many forms of delayed gratification are this. So prior to the gratification arriving, you're still in that instantaneous moment where the gratification hasn't arrived. Again, it's delayed. But the knowledge that I've done something good, maybe my example isn't so great because there at the end of the day is gratification. But that, that warm and fuzzy feeling, let's say, that when someone performs a deed that was hard for him or her, but he knew it was right, that to me is the joyful servant. It, it wasn't natural to the person. Okay. Like you, you know, you finished chopping firewood. It totally serves a purpose of making a fire. Like chopping it by itself is really just exercise, but you do feel pretty good once you got the, the pile. Experience, yeah. There's a word for a pile of like a bundle of firewood, but, but once it, once you've got that, that's like, that's the feeling of, of gratification, the joy. Yeah. That would be one example of a joy. Absolutely. And again, this is also, I, I don't want to you know beat this dead horse, but this is also a form of altruism. So any three of these that you're experiencing, and these basically cover the gamut of potential altruisms, uh, they're all considered valid. Um, now what, something that we haven't gotten into yet is the differences between the two. Each of these forms of altruism, altruism has their pros and cons. The pro of the sun-like one, the one that's almost genetically injected in you, that's super easy, is that it's easy and that is clearly consistent with your lifestyle. So that's a, a reflection of some goodness within you. But the downside is that it wasn't earned, that it wasn't so hard. Mm -hmm. You know, there is something to be said for, for working toward something and being prepared to go out of your comfort zone for the sake of what's right. You know, so that's the, the, it's pro is also it's con, 
Mm-hmm. Right. And then the, the simple servant, it's pro has the out of the comfort zone, but it's con is that it's lethargic or that it's so unnatural to you. And you clearly haven't refined your, your internal system to the extent that it is natural to you, or perhaps um, you're depressed, you know, lethargy and depression are very, very much intertwined, but um, that would be a con of the simple servant where at the first opportunity of, of freedom, the simple servant in the metaphor runs away. Right. So, so that's, that's obviously not a great symbol if we're in, we're in the discussion of serving others or serving God or serving altruism. You know, the fact that at the drop of a hat, you're prepared to just, you know, skedaddle right off. You're like, oh, shoot, clearly you're not too invested in this good duty just performed. So that's the, the, it has its pros and it has its cons. And typically speaking, the one with the biggest pros would be the joyful servant because it has the pros of going out of your comfort zone. But it has the also the pros of the sun that you're joyful and into it and invested. You know, I'm just, now I'm, I'm, I'm understanding like the way that these could be critiqued as not altruistic. Like that's my sort of a religious framing for people saying, Oh, that person's doing such a good thing. Oh, that's so nice of you to do this. And then right. That first, the first level of it just being natural to them, that's one thing. But this third, the third example, the joyful servant, it's so, if somebody says, well, actually they just, they're doing that because they like to do it, you know, maybe the firewood thing again, you know, the, oh, well, they're only being nice to you and chopping wood because they love getting away from their family and chopping wood or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then it's so easy of saying, well, then it's not a good deed. Then it wasn't nice of them. Then it wasn't a gift. Then it wasn't, but this is saying, right. Then this would be saying, no, no, it is. It's just a different kind. It's just one of the kinds. So they like mm-hmm. to do it. So maybe even better. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They all have, you should just know again, that neither are best. None, none of these three are best and okay. they all have their own pros. I was going to ask, I was going to ask, like, is it about, you know, making it become more like making it become more some, making it become more natural so that you automatically just do good stuff without pushing back. So if I was, if I was, you know, a great rabbi, I would say, um, yeah, make it natural, but then seek newer frontiers and find new things that are unnatural to you and make those more natural and find newer frontiers. So you're constantly having elements of all three. Mm. Okay. And realize that it's so mood-based. You know, that's the thing that really people need to hear to me. It's like, yeah, if yesterday you were the sun and all these good deeds, whether you're talking about like deeds between man and man and you're giving charity or even deeds between man and God and you're praying really fervently and you put on tefillin and you're feeling meditative and you're studying Torah easily. And then day two, you're like, shoot, you know, that was a fraud because I'm not feeling it today whatsoever. (laughs) You know, whether it's between man and man or between man and God, it doesn't matter, right? And the answer is no, they're all considered valid. And if today's mission is more simple servant-like, then you salute it just as much and you roll up your sleeves just as much. This is kind of about not letting the kind of judgment of your actions get in the way of actually doing good stuff. Is that, because we were talking, I think last week about, just how all of these discussions, they're not really just as a, you know, theoretical, well, this is one way of framing things. It's actually, there is, there's always got to be this sort of practical uh, outlet for the discussion. Is that one of them that like, look, just don't, if you're doing a good thing, don't, you know, don't shoot yourself in the foot, keep, keep doing it or keep, you know, 
Mm -hmm. Keep trying. That's exactly it. It's funny what you're saying, because when I study Hasidic mysticism or really any form of Jewish ethics, even if it's Pirkei Avot, which is not, you know, it's not mystical, it's a Mishnah, but it's ethics. On the one hand, they seem much less practical and much more vague and ambiguous in general, um, because it's kind of speaking of general terms of how you should see your own good deeds. Right. But on the other hand, because it's so general and because it keeps it so vague and ambiguous, it's applicable everywhere. So it's almost more practical in a way. So like there's no deed that you could do and say that's the simple servant, that's the son or that's the joyful servant, because anything could be anything. Right. So it's, it's less tangible. So it feels less practical. But because it's so intangible, any single moment, one of these three or all of these three could be relevant for an individual person or depending on the person or depending on when or depending on exactly yeah it's always good to have multiple perspectives to see the same thing in your own life could drive you pretty crazy but also like if you're getting stuck in a moment just go hey what if i saw this from this other angle and i guess i'm seeing it as this way of removing the judgment of the action so that you can actually keep doing stuff yes that is one very practical and relevant lesson that could be derived from this. Totally. Yeah. So you're saying there's more to it. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in next week. <laughs> Click on the, uh, the uh, you know, the addendum where we talk for nine more hours. And... <laughs> By the way, I think we should start doing promo, promo codes for our ads. I feel like it would make it more likely we get some return. Oh, did I not mention? Yeah, go to Go to uh, Schmendel Herring Aerosol Deodorant.gov <laughs> and put in the code uh, ZAL. And the CEO of the company will arrive at your doorstep armed with a Dvar Torah and some, some gossip for the bubby. Terms and conditions do apply. I don't know what just happened, <laughs> but I think uh, terms and conditions to apply is a good way to end off. Honestly, I really feel like, isn't that basically the, that's always kind of the lesson of anything that we read is the terms and conditions are always applying. <laughs> the terms are translated in different ways. They mean different things in the conditions. It's context is changing all the time. Read the fine print of your own life is is what i what what i what i think i mean this has to have been the hardest episode to follow like it's very meaningful and deep but you have to uh halt cup like we say in the vernacular you have to like focus i i i'm getting somewhere you know this is the kind of thing where i don't come out of it going um perfect great you know lesson learned and it never is that but i'm hoping that um that folks got something out of it and that we can keep the discussion going and so thanks again for tuning in and we'll catch you catch you next week